Hello and welcome to PMI's Leading for Business Excellence podcast. I'm Susanna Clark, Managing Partner of PMI, the performance improvement consulting and training firm. This podcast brings inspiring stories from across the globe and a multitude of different sectors with great leaders. They share their experience and what business excellence means to them. I learned so much in this episode with John Manning, founder and CEO of Arthur Ellis. Over the last maybe 15 years, looking at all of the history of mental health awareness, specifically into workplaces, is that it started around 2007. The the impact of mental health at that time was assessed at being, to put a commercial value on it, it was around £1,054 per head. So if you, as a business, weren't doing anything related to well-being or, or mental health for your staff. That was the bottom line impact of cost to you. Since then, there's been a huge influx of mental health stuff going into corporates. But now the impact per head is around £1,604. Okay. So despite a huge influx of services into corporates, it's actually gone up by about 64%. Hi, John, and thank you for joining me for our Leading for Business Excellence podcast today. I think it's your approach that being different is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you. So I wondered if we could get going with you uh, giving us a brief introduction, a brief summary of your career so far. Well, it's been a bit of a roller coaster. I started out in sales, actually, nothing to do with mental health or well-being. Actually, the opposite, really, if you look at the sales environment. (laughs) Yes. So I worked in sales started when I was about 18. If you want to go back further, I actually started work when I was 13, mm-hmm. cash in hand, selling window cleaning door to door, taking my parents' lawnmower up and down the street to find gardening opportunities on, with neighbours. an entrepreneurial spirit within you then to, to be well, thinking yeah, like that? I guess so. And, and it was, I don't know if it was partly, you know, my parents not wanting to me just to be in the house, but it was also, yeah, it was, it was, just things to do in the evenings. So I would, I'd sell window cleaning throughout the evenings after school. And then um, at the weekend, I I got a job at Marks and Spencer's and not just any shop. (laughs) And then, yeah, I I kind of started formal sales when I went, when I got to to the age of 18. And and that kind of progressed to the point where I became involved in commercial management of railway projects. So railway franchise bidding, uh, big bids, 1.6 million or so. And, and I was responsible for supporting those and leading the team a little bit. And after a few life events, uh, when I was around 26, 27, I, I started Arthur Ellis. So that's kind of a snapshot of the career so far, a bit of a, a bit of a mixture, but yeah, primarily it was very commercial. And I, and I like to think that I kind of use that experience now within the charity sector to ensure sustainability and you know, profitability for our for our beneficiaries. You mentioned cutting lawns and washing windows and yeah. so on. But you know, was that the dream? When when if I'd bumped into you on your street as a teenager and said, "Is this what you want to do when you grow up?" Was that the basis of your thinking? To be honest, kind of at the time it was, and I think that that's kind of the point. We do what we feel like we need to do at the time. Uh, I, I always used to want to be like you know typical fireman or whatever it might be, um, those those very glorified roles in society. So I've always, I think, personally wanted something that was 
credible, deemed as being, you know, a, a member of the community. And I've kind of always been driven by that in, in different sort of job choices that I've, I've gone for or, or career choices. But luckily I didn't actually do the, the window cleaning. I, I did a very simple job of just selling it. Um, so I, I, I didn't do the hard graft that, uh, that the window cleaning guys did. But, um, once I, once I started in sales and, and sort of found that relationships with people essentially dictate everything. Learning that was was paramount with all of the future decisions that I made. So I think, yeah, I, I, I did want to be a fireman. Uh, I, I, I was going to go to university to study prosthetics and become a, a prosthetics clinician. But again, in relation to, to mental health, there were a few things that unfortunately got in the way and meant that I needed to either you know, change direction, but to be honest, it didn't feel that way. It felt like more my, my perception had changed, which then changed my direction. Um, so I'm quite quite grateful for that, even though those things at the time don't necessarily feel like something you should be grateful for. So, so tell me more about Arthur Ellis, you know, how it came about and really what it is you're trying to do with organisations. Yeah, well, it came about, I kind of referenced, you know, my own history with mental health and well-being and, and it's a, it's a relatively personal story, but I, I was essentially in a mental health hospital when I was around five, six years old. Okay. Um, there were a variety of things that happened to me in the first year of school um, that didn't have a great impact on me. So I needed a variety of operations as a result, and that led to you know a lot of stress and, and not being in a very good place when I was quite young. But the, the introduction to that, um, Susanna, have you seen Shutter Island? No. Well, the list, the listeners might have seen Shutter Island. If not, you can kind of Google it, but it's a, it's a Leonardo DiCaprio film about a, a mental, in, a psychiatric institute. And not to say that this hospital was anything like that because Shutter Island is its own thing, but the introduction to gaining support in some ways is more important than the support itself. So the ease of access, how welcoming it feels, you know, and especially at a very young age. So when I went to this hospital, it was, there was very, it was beige walls, you know, typical kind of hospital site. There was a two-way mirror and it didn't feel, you know, like, welcome, you're safe. We're not interrogating you at all. Um, so I didn't talk to anyone anymore about what was going on with me. And, and that kind of built up until I was around 16 and, and had another issue and a bit of a relapse and then 18 and it was just a it became a recurring thing without really being able to fully sort it out i could imagine have you heard of the priory yes susanna what yes, would you I tend to associate people who've been to the priory so oh really you know, yeah from addiction and also depression yeah well they do they do all sorts of things they've got loads of sites around the country and they all specialize in different things and i'd been in quite a, a broad waiting list a long waiting list at the time um through through the statutory services through the NHS and people are probably familiar with you know waiting lists in the NHS yes. might not be a might not be a shock to people um, but I'd been waiting on and off for an appointment for about four years and at that point I was just like I need to do something so I was lucky enough to be able to go to the priory but just for one appointment I'm not you know Russell Brand or anything I can't just <laughs> go, go there all the time because it's about four hundred pounds an hour wow. so okay. I just needed some answers and that's where I learned about Arthur and Ellis who are my granddads mm -hmm. and Ellis was actually in a in, a, in, in an institute for about 35 36 years um, and that was down to he, his own condition, he had something called schizoaffective disorder, which is 
a broad term, but it's, it's essentially, it's also quite a petrifying sounding thing. Um, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's bipolar essentially, but at a level where psychosis is quite readily present. So if somebody's seen, any of the listeners may have seen A Beautiful Mind, the film with Russell Crowe. Yeah. Um, so that depicts John Nash, who's a, a Nobel Prize winning mathematician, but he had a very similar condition to Ellis. So you can imagine West Yorkshire, 1970s, not really understood. People didn't know how to support him. He didn't know how to support himself. Uh, so he was unfortunately, yeah, it put in an institute for, for majority of the remaining of his life. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And in that appointment at the Priory, I was, I was diagnosed with bipolar. So bipolar, but not the schizoaffective type, which obviously I'm grateful for in, in some degrees. But at the same time, like I said earlier about these different experiences in our life change our perceptions. With, with bipolar, your life expectancy becomes around 50 years old. So I'm, I'm 32 at the minute. And not to say that I'm kind of counting down or anything, but it really does put things into perspective when, when you know, you're sat across from a medical professional telling you stuff like that. So I was, I was on the way back and, you know, I'd been searching for some level of answer for 20 years or so. And I was on the way back from that appointment and I realized now I have an answer. It gives me no information about what I need to do moving forward for my own life, for myself, for, for you know, that I can be effective for the people around me because at the time I really wasn't. So I, um, I quit my job, remortgaged my house, hired about nine clinicians of different disciplines to learn from them. And that was the start of Arthur Ellis and, and our training I kind of realized that there, there's enough out there that is raising awareness for conditions. There's not enough out there that's raising awareness of actionable things that people can do about them or actionable things they can do to prevent them. So started on this journey about, it's coming up for five and a half years ago. And now we're, we, you know, we're, we're operating training globally and the, the trainings allowed us to facilitate a one-to-one service uh, with using profit from corporates that we work with uh, to, to support children, young people and anyone of any age uh, that might mm-hmm. be in need of some, some level of support. So it's, it's kind of escalated quite a bit. It's, it's an incredible story, John. And also it takes a certain kind of character to, to be able to lift yourself from that position you found yourself in to say, I need to do something you know, serious about this. And, and mm. you know, bravo. It, it, it's an amazing, it's amazing story, but also the results are incredible. I'd like to talk about, the work that you're doing, I mean, I know, as you rightly say, you're doing work in two areas. You're working with corporates and then you're a registered charity. The profits are being used to support individuals um, yes. on a one-to-one basis. Can we talk a bit about the corporate journey? Because I think that um, mental health and well-being is so much higher on people's agendas today. How well do you think those are understood, I think is my question. Yeah, and, and you're, you're right. You're right to ask that question, but I would probably add to it as well, Susanna, mm-hmm. about not necessarily how, how well is, is mental health and wellbeing understood in a corporate capacity, but what's actually being delivered as well. Mm-hmm. So if, if there's a particular goal, is that actually being worked towards? Uh, and, and what is the goal? So in relation to, to the corporate world, mental health and well-being, 
I don't want to kind of, I don't want to pinpoint any particular industries or, or any particular organizations, but I think we all know that in order to make something commercial, it's beneficial to make it more complicated than it is so that, you know, you, you can be consulting it and whatever, right? It's, if, if you simplify it to, to, to the degree that people can do it themselves, then you do yourself out of a job. I, I, I've seen over, the last maybe 15 years looking at looking at all of the history of mental health awareness specifically into workplaces is that it started around 2007 and the the impact of mental health at that time was assessed at being to put a commercial value on it it was around 1054 pounds per head so if you okay. as a business weren't doing anything related to well-being or, or mental health for your staff. That was the bottom line impact of cost to you. So that's a combination of different things. People being sick and, and you know, uh, not coming back into the workplace very quickly. People leaving, around 300,000 people leave every year from jobs um, because of mental health. Um, sick days, for example, there are loads of sick days to, to do with mental health, but the, the figures aren't clear because about 95% of people who are calling in sick due to their mental health lie about it. Yes. And they might say tummy bug, cough, you know, kids are sick, whatever it might be. I guess lying, but also not necessarily, they may not have diagnosed themselves or had someone diagnose it for them. They may not know as individuals uh, yeah. what's the root cause. Absolutely, absolutely. Because, you know, mental health has a massive impact on our physical health as well. So, you know, we, we all know that stress exacerbates a variety of different things, whether it's skin conditions, IBS, you know, uh, chest pain, all of this stuff. So you're right, it could display as something else, but actually the root cause being something else, uh, something sort of mental health or well-being related. So to, to begin with, it's kind of, we need to ascertain what, what, is, the, what is the goal and, and, and really what are we working on? To understand if services are actually going to be effective for that particular corporate. And I, I'm personally quite concerned that since 2007 and, and that impact financially on businesses being about £1,054 uh, per person in, in, the, in the business. So you're looking at about a million pounds per thousand people impact to the bottom line. Um, since then, you've probably can tell there's been a huge influx of mental health stuff going into corporates since that sort of point. But now the impact per head is around £1,604. So despite okay. a huge influx of services into corporates, um, it's actually increasing the cost, the bottom line impact to corporates. So it's gone up by about 64%. So that was one of the questions that I had, and I, I don't know whether you would have an answer from your perspective, you know, being a well-established business, but uh, it's, it's strange that the negative impact of mental health has been going up despite the introduction of training services, more support. Um, so that's a very strange thing. Yes. I mean, I wouldn't know, I, I'm not qualified to know the answer to that, but I guess in my experiences and things that I see and obviously, you know, data that's around, I would imagine that there's, it's a bit like progress, isn't it? You know, mm. progress goes on and, and with progress comes new influences that can affect our well-being. So for instance, social media, you mm. know, has impacted people in different ways and that could have a, you know, a, a longer term effect than you might realize. Um, automation, um, and, and different people feeling 
not qualified, not capable uh, to to use ever more uh, examples of technology. I would imagine all of this is having its impact. Absolutely. There's so many different correlations, especially yeah. I'm pleased you brought up social media because say it was released about 2007 when you know mental health awareness in, into workplaces started. Uh, in 2010, I think there was a Harvard study which showed that um, it was particularly focused on on females, so more young young women. But the amount of young women in society that were self-harming tripled within three years of social media being released. So there are there's huge amounts of direct correlation. And if you look at what that does for our communication skills, you know, we're introducing lots of technology. Um, is changing the way that we communicate. So now people who are 26 years old, who are maybe entering the workplace after university or or are already in the workplace, they won't know communication without smartphones mm. because smartphones were released when they were around 10, 11 years old. And then if you look at social media, everyone who is now 18 this year uh, or 19 this year uh, won't know li- life without social media. So we're not necessarily, it's not just these things that we know are, have a negative impact on us that are part of our lives, but now there's a brand new generation coming into the workforce who don't know any different. We, we yes. might have a reference because we know life before it and we've built skills up and grown, grown building skills to communicate and, and all of these different things. But technology in particular, aside from a variety of other societal things that are going on, is actually diminishing our capability to be well. Which is frightening considering how all prevalent technology is exactly yeah and, and that's that's one of the things when when you're looking at mental health or, or well-being particularly in businesses it's not necessarily just doing a survey and figuring out if your staff are happy it's what methods of communication are you all using so that you feel like a team so that you you feel like you're part of a community and you have a sense of belonging and that's that can be driven by a really well-structured well-being strategy providing that it's evidence-based. And there's five particular areas that organizations can work on. Happy to go through that in, in more detail, if, if you like. But, but that, that was, that's my concern, really, is that organizations, particularly leaders, you know, the, the decision-makers within businesses will have been making decisions and trying to do their best for their colleagues and their staff since 2007. But all they're seeing is the numbers go up and it's we're, we're stuck in this kind of firefighting state of different things being released into society, maybe necessarily not necessarily regulated, which is having a big impact on people outside of work. And then that's in turn, you know, meaning that organizations are having to firefight these issues in order to you know, achieve what they need to achieve. So there's this really strange balance of almost like, yeah, the, the world working against our well-being, <laughs> and it can feel quite hopeless, really. Uh, you know, I've certainly had times in the last five years or so that it's just been like, this is too big. This is this is too complicated. There's too much going on. Especially, you know, being a charity and stuff. I was I was a volunteer for the for the first four years. So if I'm so if I am a leader in an organisation of a, you know any size, but let's imagine I've got actually quite a large organisation. So I've not got necessarily the sort of contact, for instance, in PMI that we might have because we're much smaller. Yeah. And what 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 do I need to be thinking about? What's your advice on on how to approach? this huge issue? 
So I want to say something, but it's going to sound really weird until I add some context. But <laughs> um, from an organization point of view, a good well-being strategy is built around facilitating people's bananas. Okay. Which is strange. And it's not an innuendo, I promise. Um, we, work, we work a lot with children um, and go into schools and do uh, lessons and, and do banana and donuts lessons and things like that. Um, and you can imagine the kind of excitement and innuendos that we get. It's, it's very yeah. fun, but you know, it's something they remember, which is wonderful. Um, yes. So a banana, uh, Susanna, I'm going to ask you if it's okay. Um, what would happen? That's, it's not exclusive to bananas. We just call it a banana. But if you were to introduce a piece of fruit into your diet, once a day for a couple of weeks, mm -hmm. what will happen to you over that, those, that, that two weeks? You can mix it up, use different fruit, whatever you want. You're just, in, you're just adding a bit of fruit to your day. Well, presumably I will be more healthy because I'm getting more vitamins. I'm getting fresh, um, unpreserved nutrition. Absolutely. And yeah, I'm also vitamins. developing a habit if I'm doing it for a couple of weeks, presumably. Absolutely, I'm, I'm starting yeah. to develop a habit. Absolutely. And, and the banana for us is a metaphor. Um, obviously it's not, it's not kind of, I, I would, I'm not, you know, sponsors of a particular banana brand or anything like that okay. yet. Um, but that's the way that we would like people to, or encourage people to look at their healthy behaviors. So there's five healthy behaviors and this kind of forms an organization's well-being strategy. So the first one is move. We call it move because exercise is a little bit daunting sometimes, depending on what state people are in. Um, so it's just move. And that's 20 minutes a day, roughly, at a minimum, to keep consistent. So when we exercise, there's an area of our brain called the hippocampus, and that's responsible for our memory, learning new things, and also regulating our emotions. So the hippocampus is responsible for releasing a hormone called serotonin, which is our natural mood stabilizer. So that helps us to stay in control of how we're feeling. And when we walk, not just walk, um, you know, depending on people's capabilities and, and accessibility of these things, um, 20 minutes of walking is kind of used as a gauge. But if someone has a disability or is unable to do walking or any other thing like that, it could be stuff that you do on the sofa. You know, there's, there's a variety of things, particularly on the NHS website, that's like couch to 5k or whatever it yes, might be. Yeah. So you can find something that's suitable for you. But when we walk for roughly 20 minutes, the hippocampus actually grows within our brain. Now, obviously it's a minute amount. Don't worry about, you know, walking too much that your head's going to explode, <laughs> but it enables our hippocampus to release more serotonin into our system. So anyone who has been through, you know, maybe got a really good exercise routine and then they've been through a phase where that's been interrupted, they've probably noticed that they might get a little bit more snappy, irritable, frustrated. And that's because literally our, our bodies are, are limited in our emotional regulation. It also happens in the gut and a variety of other places. Unless we have all of our bananas in a row, it would be very, very difficult to stick to a diet. So that's why we tend to sort of say move uh, in order to give us a kickstart to, to get that serotonin into our system. So facilitating movement within your organization is paramount, absolutely paramount. The amount of people who work from home now or work hybridly and don't leave their desk during the day for whatever reason, maybe they forget, maybe they feel guilty, you know, mm -hmm. no one's watching me work, so I need to put more effort in kind of attitude. It's very, very easy to stop. And that's just going to make us more 
irritable, short to react, uh, especially mm. when if you're dealing with customers, that's not a great place to be. So you can kind of start seeing where that financial impact may come from per head. So, but that, does that surprise you? Like exercise? I know that that's, it's a pretty common thing that people need to get. Yes. So no, it doesn't surprise me. What I, what I like about how you describe a, a, a not just the physical benefits of exercise, but the mental benefits. Mm. That for me is really clear. And I, I, I really appreciate that explanation. I think that's, that's new. Yeah. For, for me personally, it's, it's been quite a game changer. So, mm. it, and it's, it allows you, once you get good at it, cause it, this, this thing is, it's a practice. Um, even though I know it sounds, it's a walk. It's, it doesn't sound complicated, but actually doing it and building it into your life consistently, uh, is tough, you know, yeah. especially with all the different things that we've got to do every day. It, it's, it has a remarkable impact and it doesn't just allow you to keep consistent, but actually allows you to channel your feelings somewhere. So if you do recognize that you're less in control of your emotions, maybe more tearful, irritable, snappy, whatever, then it gives you something to target that towards, you know, Oh, I've been really snappy today. I'm really sorry, I, which is a line that I always have to say. Uh, you know, I, I need to walk more. I need to move more. And that's going to, that's going to allow me to, to be more in control of that. So there's a big personal responsibility with it, of course. So that's kind of our first banana. The second one is focus. And that's any activity that draws our attention to the present moment. So that could be gardening, reading. Is there anything that you do that comes to mind? Both of those. Do you love? Yeah, that. yeah, both of those, and not daily, but mm-hmm. I, I love theatre, and that immersion in that yes, yeah. for that three such hours. A good word, yeah, it's such a good word, and that's that's kind of what focus is about. And it, we 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 generally probably have a lot of activities that we do that we don't describe as mm-hmm. you know in that bracket, uh, but the way to think about focus is is it it supports. It has a knock-on effect, similar to move, and has a knock-on effect to our regulation ability. Uh, focus uh, activities like gardening, like going to the theatre, which is a great one. Uh, maybe even cleaning, um, organising, tidying, uh, writing, arts and crafts. These things, they it might sound fluffy and kind of you know like meditation, like oh yeah, whatever. What that's boring. Uh, it's not actually going to have any impact. But what it does is it allows us to be in the present moment. And with everything going on, we're, we're all so future focused. What's going on next week? What's going on in the, you know, what's happening across the world in a year's time? Um, we're so concerned about the future. And the definition of anxiety is concerned and worry about uncertain future events. So if we are consistently filling ourselves and, and concentrating on the future, we are going to be anxious. It's simple as that, really. And about 60% of anxiety is driven by stress. So you've probably all said, oh, I, I wish I could read more or had the time to do whatever. And we need to make time. Otherwise, we're just going to continue to have a really poor relationship with anxiety and not practice being in the present to be able to have a better relationship with it. Um, so those activities are incredibly important for us. Uh, and from an organizational point of view, it can be very simple. It doesn't mean that you need to hire a meditation expert or anything like that. You could have, you know, encourage people to play cards at lunch rather than scroll on their phones, you know, put yes. some packs of cards out and you'll be surprised that people just, you know, start doing things. Yeah. Um, 
maybe even like board games, go to a charity shop and get Scrabble uh, or whatever it might be. Just giving people a break from their devices uh, so that they stop getting future notifications and they can be in the present for an hour a day uh, can be an incredibly powerful tool. And that goes towards developing our self-awareness. Susanna, have you ever driven somewhere and not remembered the journey? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And my, and my father used to do it remarkably uh, frequently. And he used to call it that he got there um, on George. George for him was what he was called his automatic pilot. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, so he said, yeah, I've got to say on George. And if you... <laughs> um, Pleased you're here. Safe and yes, sound. So glad you arrived. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, but uh, he, was, he was an architect and his brain would be still on the drawing that he was doing the building yeah. he was designing whilst driving along. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and it's, and that, that's where kind of there's some rules that come in with this and things that we need to consider. And that's where, you know, bananas can, can help. Cause if you consider a banana being something that you can introduce into your life that won't have a massive impact, but only make you healthier, that's kind of a good way to think about how we're spending our time. You know, if I sit on the sofa and scroll on social media for two weeks, am I going to be healthier? And probably the answer is no. So it's not something that's good for us. And when it comes to, you know, if, if, if he was an architect, he'd be drawing all the time, which sounds like that should be a focus activity. He should be on top of it all the time and be great. But if there's pressure attached to it and it's not something that you're, it's something that you have to do, then that, that kind of changes our relationship with it a little bit. And that's why people could maybe sometimes get a bit resentful with a, with work, even if it's, you know, even if they work in a gym, you know, and exercising all the time, you can still have an impact because your relationship's different with it. So these are things that are stress-free, things that we enjoy, uh, things that we make the time for where we don't have to do anything else and can have a huge impact for us and sort of forgetting where, how we've got somewhere or maybe being asked what we had for dinner last night and we just cannot remember tend to be a very, very early pre-symptomatic signs that we need to take a bit more time for ourselves and maybe play cards at lunch or focus on gardening this weekend so that we mm. can allow our brain to have a bit of a break and our synapses yes. to not be crossed and, and align themselves. So that's, that's kind of focus. Discover is the third one. So that's learning new things. Susanna, not to mention any particular names, but at work, do you tend to feel sometimes like it's much easier for you to do something rather than giving it to someone else to do, even though it's someone else's job. Yes, sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> but that also works both ways. I mean, I had a conversation oh, course, this morning yeah. where I spoke to somebody and I said, could you do this for me? Because mm. it was easy, going to be easier and quicker for them to do it. But really, it should have been something that I do. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That goes both ways. Yeah. For sure. Absolutely. So, discover is linked to sort of the third element of our what we call our emotional skill set. So, we've got regulation, we've got self awareness, and the third one's motivation. Um, so, do you have kids, Susanna? I do. Two two daughters. Two daughters. So, um, getting up for school in the morning and that sort of thing. How, how motivated would you say? Well, they're beyond that these days, but oh, okay. <laughs> but when they were but when they were young, yeah, not 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 so much, not so much. So motivation, we kind of split into two categories: extrinsic, which is probably what 
you know, parents or people are are more familiar with. So mm-hmm. externally motivating somebody. So geeing them up, maybe pulling them by their ear sometimes if they're really reluctant to get out of bed <laughs> or, um, you know, or kicking them out the door, hopefully not physically. But, you know, that's extrinsic motivation. But for our well-being, you know, unfortunately I can't exercise or, or someone can't exercise for me and I get the six pack. So, mm-hmm. um from from a well-being perspective, we look at internal motivation, like intrinsic motivation. So from within, how self-starting are we? How do we get going in the morning? How do we feel? And if if we're lacking in motivation, that might come across as being quite lethargic. Mm. Um, happens in winter a lot. It could be that we're just feeling quite sluggish. Maybe we're lacking enjoyment in the things that we do. And discovering things can help with that massively. So that could be something that you achieve, something that you accomplish from, from scratch and you see the benefits of it. So for example, I've got one where I, I fixed a tap. It was 2021, Euros were on, it was a Sunday, the call out charge. I don't even want to imagine what that would have been from a plumber, <laughs> but I was just settling down on my sofa and the tap just went on full blast all of a sudden and it just was on. So I had to figure out what to do. And I looked on YouTube, watched some tutorials, got it fixed and felt incredible afterwards. So have you got anything like that that you've had to do in the past? Um, so at the moment, I am starting some a, a project outside of work, but it's charity related, sustainability related. And it's associated with providing uh, food, but high quality dinners for people. And then profits are going to go to plant a tree. Oh, great. I'm doing it with some friends. So we got, you know, it's a group event. Um, and one of the things that I've offered to do is make bread, but make artisan bread from scratch, etc. And the first set of bread I made was absolutely beautiful. And I have been making bread for the last two weeks and I haven't managed to make it as well as the first bread I made. And I've had to really think about what is it I'm doing differently. I'm using the same ingredients, you know, yeah, all yeah. the other things. Yeah. But the pride I felt with the first two loaves oh, that yeah, came out that were amazing. And now I'm starting to, to just work harder on getting better and better and better at it. So my family, as and when they're home, are, are, are having to eat fresh bread. It's not something they're complaining about. unless I can imagine. Flat. I can imagine. I, had, I did do a flat loaf the other day. It wasn't very good at all. It wasn't meant <laughs> to be flat. I say, you know. Um, oh, I see. Okay. okay. I was going to say, well, bread, bread's bread. Bread's incredible. No, so I'm, not, not, not when you're you trying to get something that's four inches deep and it's about a centimetre deep. It's not. <laughs> well, if, if you do have any like that, I, I would please feel free to donate it to me. Okay. Send, send, put, it, put it in a box, send it over. It'd be wonderful. Um, but yeah, you mentioned that pride and you're right. Mm. When, when we accomplish something like that, and maybe listeners can think about maybe a scenario in their own lives that they've, achieved it might be diy related it could be baking related it could be even you know a, a, a song that they've learned how to play on their their instrument something new you know or or a new element or a technique in a hobby um whatever it is like that it gives us a huge sense of accomplishment and that goes so far towards our confidence our self esteem uh, giving us that boost um We've probably had a, an opportunity or, or a moment before in all of our lives where we do something like that, and we can't just we can't help but just tell everybody because we're so yes. happy with ourselves. Yes. So those, you know, that they're they're relatively like flagship examples, but day to day, there's a general rule in in health and care and 
across the board is not to do something for somebody that they're able to do themselves. Mm. So when we do as a leader, it's tough or as a manager, it's tough because sometimes it is easier for us to just do it and just crack on. But you're kind of almost, if you think about it in a way that you're, you're stealing that person's accomplishment, the, the knock on effects to, you know, maybe it taking another hour, but mm. that person, um, or maybe, you know, putting a bit more effort into it. Not only will that person be able to do it next time, but they're going to get such a sense of accomplishment from it. Um, and the same for us, if we delegate out pieces of work that we should be doing, you know, we're almost stealing our own confidence away from ourselves. Mm. So we do owe it to ourselves to, to either encourage people, other people to do things that we know that they're capable of doing or, you know, having a look around and seeing, right, if I feel lethargic, if I feel unmotivated, what might I be able to fix this weekend or learn this weekend? Even if it's like listening to a podcast, you know, something educational, we can then go and share that with our friends. Like, guess what I found out? And it it helps us. Um, So that's, you know, discover. It's very, very powerful and and makes up our, or or contributes heavily towards our motivation. The fourth one is, is communicate. Uh, we call it communicate. It, it supports our social skills, our ability to build and, and maintain strong relationships around us. That's driven by the methods of communication that we're using. So we've got verbal and nonverbal communication. And I know, Susanna, we've gone through this in our in some of our workshops in, in PMI, <laughs> but I'm gonna test you if that's okay. Uh, okay. Do you remember do you remember roughly how much of our communication skills we're using when we're using not a, a verbal communication? Seven percent. Yes, it is. Seven percent. So when when we talk about verbal communication, that might be the words that we're putting into a Teams chat or an email that we're sending or a WhatsApp or whatever. It's just purely the the you know the the, the that form of communication. We're not using much of our skill at all. And that goes back to what we were saying earlier on. And if you know people might want to go back and listen to that bit about how that how our, our communication skills and, and what we're using to communicate has changed given the introduction of technology you know 26 yeah. years old people haven't communicated without a smartphone before so it's um well they, they obviously have outside of smartphones but our methods of communication are changing so we're primarily using verbal communication day to day especially if you're working from home but non-verbals where it's at We've got to, we've got to really focus on getting more of our nonverbal skills up. And that's body language, eye contact, uh, tone of voice. Is there anything that you would put into that category? Anything that I haven't mentioned? Hand gestures is, is one. Well, I think of that as body language. I mean, I'm a big waver. Yeah. You're a big waver. <laughs> yes. It's good, isn't it? That your expressions and expressing yourself. It's great. So that's, that makes up the 93%. And I don't know if you, you might not want to say when this was but i'm sure you've probably used a hand gesture and not said a word but said an awful lot to somebody this morning i said i used this a morning? facial gesture yeah because oh, okay okay i was not i was working then. no it wasn't a hand it was a facial <laughs> gesture but it you know it 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 conveyed a completely different message. And <laughs> the person I was talking to, she said, I'm really not convinced. You're normally really positive, but that face you just pulled doesn't make me think this is the right <laughs> thing to do. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's, it's so telling. And that's picking up on those things, you know, not necessarily just from a, you know, putting out the right impression, mm. but it allows people to be able to receive the correct impression and to yeah. get used to understanding, right, I'm sat across from this client. They're telling me that they're happy, but I know that they're not, you know, that mm. feeling that you get that something's up that you need to go and do it. So there's very, you know, communication, I, I think 
I'll waste my time if I try and convince people that it's a, it's a valuable skill because I think people know. But from an organizational point of view, if you are introducing new technologies or if you are introducing methodologies across the business that are going to promote purely the verbal, you're doing people, your customers, your relationships, not enough justice whatsoever because people are going to very quickly notice that their social skills and their ability to build those relationships in the first place is actually diminishing. So as part of a well-being strategy, including, you know, maybe reviewing how do all of our people communicate day to day internally? How do we communicate with our customers? Is it face to face? Are we, even if it's online, you know, are we allowing people to access those skills? Are we facilitating our people's relationships, you know, which can be quite a simple adjustment. You know, I was in Blackpool this week with a with an organization and one of their values as a company is to have your camera on, which I just thought yes. was great. You know, it's yes. just, it provides a bit of accountability. You know, first meeting in the morning, have my camera on. I'm probably not going to shower. I'm probably not really care what I look like, <laughs> what I wear. Uh, and it's, it's, it's not necessarily just having your camera on. It's everything that surrounds that, you know, making mm. sure your environment then is a nice environment, maybe making sure that you are hygienic, you're, you're looking after yourself. So just something as simple as that. It doesn't necessarily have to be right. We're not using teams anymore. We're going to delete it. Don't do that. But you can just find opportunities that allow people to communicate effectively rather than just volume. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. And then the final one is help. And that's all about helping others and being in a position to help others. So if we can manage all the other four, we can begin to help other people. And when we do good deeds, whether it's helping someone with their shopping, helping someone cross the road, maybe putting them, it's my bin day. So I'm going to put some of my neighbor's bins back by their houses and stuff because they're out at work and I work from home. So just deeds like that, providing we're not expecting anything back is is incredible that releases dopamine uh, which is our reward hormone so it tells us that we've done a good job and that's a very addictive feeling it's actually the 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 hormone most associated to addiction you know why not get addicted to helping people and then oxytocin as well which is our love hormone and gives us this incredible feeling of again pride Uh, if if someone that you love achieves something you're probably going to get a warm fuzzy feeling and, and that's kind of oxytocin so it feels great but when those two things are being released, our brain stops the release of cortisol, stress hormone. Like we said about earlier on with move, you know, if you're feeling irritable or angry or maybe tearful, you can go for a walk to encourage you know, to support the release of serotonin and, and being in control of those moods. Same with helping others and stress. You know, you can align your CSR with your well-being so that during really stressful periods, you know, year-end. I appreciate that during stressful periods, you don't want to add more to people's plates. But again, it could just be built in to someone's day of an element of CSR that's part of their job. And that's going to actually stem the release of cortisol into people's systems in the first place and allow them to be less stressed whilst building their resilience with the other activities and and making for a really well-rounded well-being strategy. So, so it's kind of long-winded, but that's kind of the the five elements and, and some of the things that organizations can simply do to, to get them in place. No, it's fascinating, John, and it, it makes it tangible. You know, there's nothing you're talking about here that is so far away from being in scope of what's possible, which is, which mm. is amazing. It's one of the things, obviously, that, you know, we really like about what you're doing. 
let's say I'm a leader of an organization again, and I want to address this. I want to address this wholeheartedly, but I also want to get some sense of how am I doing? You know, how are we doing as an organization? Mm. How tangible is it to be able to sort of measure the, the, the impact of, of this type of work, do you think? Yeah. It, historically, the, the methods of measuring impact have been typically activity-based. Mm. So, you know, how many steps are you doing? How many appointments have people had? Or what's our utilization? Do you know mm. what I mean? So it's, it's kind of like, the, the number of appointments or whatever. So if you're looking at your EAP or if you're looking at services that you might have in place, the first thing to do is, is to kind of have a look at how are they measuring themselves and whether it's either activity based. So, uh, quantitative of, you know, how many appointments are we doing rather than outcome based. So what are the actual outcomes of those appointments? Are people happy? Have you made a difference to their lives? Which isn't often measured. So Mm -hmm. there's relatively simple measures to that. And if you think back to my sort of story at the beginning of the introduction to gaining support, Mm. so many times have I heard that people have reached out in businesses or reached out to a service that the business has as an employee benefit and either never heard back or, or not had a great experience or maybe not had enough support or it was too generic, whatever it might be. But their six appointments are still going to go on to the impact data of, aren't we doing a good job? But actually their experience may have had the impact on them that is not encouraging them to reach out again in the future. We did some, just to, to put that into context, we did, we did some groups, uh, weekly groups on a Saturday for children that were affected and by, by drugs and alcohol. So they'd been removed from the family. Some of them were looked after by you know, foster carers or whatever. Some were, were looked after by alternative guardians. And it was very, very cute. They were like six years old and for some, you know, they were doing art and a variety of things. It was lovely. But we had, I think, four groups that we, we could do with them. And on the third group, I was getting a bit, not necessarily existential, not that extreme, but it was, it was obvious that this wasn't going to be enough to help the kids, you know, four groups isn't, it's good, but it's not enough to, to, to help them. And the way that I phrased it at the time was I, we're not going to be able to fix them. And I was wrong. I was very wrong. And someone that I work with corrected me and said, our job isn't to fix them. These kids or these, these people will be in support for the rest of their lives. Mm. And I think to a degree we all are. But what's important is that they've had a good introduction to gaining support and asking for help. Yeah. So when we're looking at services, understanding what, you know, our, our colleagues are, you know, if it's a employee benefit, our colleagues are the customers. So we need to understand what the customer experience actually is. Is the introduction to it easy? Is it simple? Is it welcoming? You know, so that's kind of the first thing. How do people actually access the service and what are people saying about accessing it, not just taking the organization's word for it? And then having a look at how it's measured in a way of being a bit more, obviously not personally identifiable, but we use measures like um, a Warwick Edinburgh scale, which is 14 questions or so. It's a psychological assessment. So we do the, 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 the qualitative stuff, you know, like we call them happy sheets. So, you know, how are you? What's your feedback? I hope you had a nice time. But then we actually have a look at, right, asking questions similar to how have you felt in this respect for the last two weeks? And we do that before we start appointments and at the end of appointments to have a look at, right, what is the actual 
difference to well-being that we've had on that person. And if you look at sort of NHS services, for example, there's a a study by STEM4. Um, So if you've got training internally that's encouraging people to go to their GPs and, you know, more than likely they're going to be referred on into into secondary services, which is mental health appointments or assessments, etc. The impact of about six appointments is a positive impact overall of about 1.6%. So Susanna, if, if, if that was it, you know, us and I was your practitioner, um, after six hour long appointments, you will feel 1.6% better. That doesn't sound great. Well, <laughs> no, it's, it's, <laughs> and that's kind of, that's, that's it, you know, that, that's kind of the point. Yeah, you're encouraging me to go and get that service. Why? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, where's the incentive? Am I? Is it actually going to help? And yes. there's a rule in psychology where if somebody has to fight for something three times and they still don't receive it, they will give up. It's kind of a it's a it's a natural, almost a biological response of if you put two animals in a cage, they'll fight to find out who's dominant. The once the success rate of the less dominant creature dips below 30%, they will not try again. So if you put that into context of reaching out for help, ask for help three times on the fourth time, you don't get it, or it's too difficult or something's in the way that person is not going to be asking for help anymore. And that's a very, very sad state to be in. So having a look at actually, you know, measuring impact, what not necessarily just are people happy or would they recommend the services? Because we all know that surveys can be asked in a particular way that shows those figures favorably. What are the nuts and bolts of the actual scientific assessment of these things? Yeah. And for example, we did, we've done bananas. Um, we've got bananas as a resource. Uh, so after the workshop, people tend to see, you know, tend to get the resource through. We've worked with somebody just doing that uh, for six weeks. So, you know, how do you exercise? What's your relationship with it? How can we get more of it into your life? And almost organizing well-being into their life. And we did that pre and post assessment and their well-being increased by 139%. So if I could, if I could tell you, you know, that, and none of it's clinical either. So the history of mental health has been I, you know, do you know the signs and symptoms of depression, anxiety? And for a, for a leader, manager, someone who's a colleague, that's, that's very daunting. You know, I've had half a day of training. Should I be talking about conditions with somebody? Uh, am I overstepping the mark? You know, so if we can just purely focus on those practical elements of life, someone's life, then you can have an incredible impact to their well-being just by facilitating it. You don't have to work out for them uh, just by facilitating it. And you can have a huge impact to their to their life and how they feel and ultimately their work. So it doesn't need to be complicated. We just need to do it. That's fascinating. And that data about the psychology study of, of fight for something three times, mm. I will hold that because I find that really resonates. I understand it and recognize yeah. it completely. So being more conscious of that too. If you, if you think, yeah, you're, you're reaching out to a service for the third time and mm. they've not got back to you or you've told them the same thing or maybe in that period of time, you know, reaching out to, to a service three times, more than likely six, nine months might have gone by or whatever. Mm. So you're probably providing more information that they might still not be listening to. So it becomes so disheartening. And if you, if you think about 
you know, the, the lack of things that we've spoken about so far, like lack of motivation, uh, lack of emotional regulation. And you're trying to really fight for that whilst feeling that way. Yes. It's yes. not beyond thought that people wouldn't even try three times in the first place. Exactly. The whole reason for asking you to join me today is because I find that this is a, an area that's fascinating, but most importantly, that you've created a, mm. a system by which people can engage and mm. create results in a way that is so tangible, doable. I think, I think it's fascinating. Thank you. And I suppose, therefore, my last question is going to be, if a leader came to you and said, what do you think makes a great leader? Given what you know as well, what would you say? I, I would say that it's having a good relationship with your bananas personally, because you need to be in a good place in order to lead. If you're not in a good place and you're leading people, mm. those people are going to be misled. <laughs> um, but also having a very good understanding and a, and a, and a good ability or skill to balance the difference between personal boundaries and sacrifice. The way that I see it anyway, you might see it differently, Susanna, because I think leadership is different for different people. But for me personally, leaders eat last. And that's, yes, there's, there's glory in being a leader and, you know, the, you, you can, you've got a job title and whatever. But ultimately, you eat last. You, you make sure everything, everyone else around you is okay before you make sure you're okay. And yes, that does contribute to being a good leader, but not at the sacrifice of yourself. So I think having that real, you know, having solid boundaries in place with yourself uh, and being able to implement those boundaries in your support network and the people around you whilst helping people and, and being somewhat sacrificial to, to, to aid others. I think having the balance right of that, not necessarily the act of it, but the balance is a good leader. John, thank you so much for taking the time um, and joining me today. It's been it's a fascinating topic. I'm looking forward to our own conversations me in the too. future. Thank you so much for having me on as well. Appreciate it. and appreciate you, Susanna, and, and the work that PMI do as well. So thank you. Thank you so much. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of PMI's Leading for Business Excellence podcast with John Manning. I hope you feel inspired to think about your own mental health and well-being, what you can do and what you can do for others. I know I do. If you'd like to know more about how you can develop your career in business excellence, transform your organisation, then please do drop us a line. Team at pmi.co.uk. I'd love to hear from you.